BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends. Welcome to Unsiloed, the show that busts the echo chambers. If you dig hearing opposing perspectives about big issues from a point of mutual respect, if you like debate but love light, not heat, welcome home. Dude, I'm so excited. Why do you think I'm excited? Because we're recording. Well, no, you that, miss me because uh, you I know did, we haven't. <laughs> I always miss you when you're not here. I definitely miss you, but no, it's not uh, that. It's actually the fact that we are relaunching this here podcast. Yeah, I'm very excited about that as well. Um, we've been talking about this for a while, thinking about how do we evolve the the podcast. Being that when we first started, I think the intent that we had and what we thought it was going to be versus what it ended up kind of becoming evolved quite a bit. Yeah. And I think like everything else, we wanted to change with the times. It has to be more reflective of where we think the podcast needs to be going forward. So the name of the new show is Unsiloed. And I do confess that you came up with the name, much to my dismay. Uh, yeah. Because I like to be, you know, every now and then throw out a creative little, you know, thing. But um, but what is it? What is unsiloed? By the way, mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I came up with the name with a second word that actually doesn't really fully make sense. Right. And it's like really hard to do search engine optimization against. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And nobody can spell. Perfect. Perfect. Um, well, I will say like the evolution, right, that we talked about. The evolution of it was that initially was a lot about conversations that are in the diversity space. I, actually, I would say the very, very first version of the podcast, where we, we started talking about the fact that we saw that these, these circles of conversations were starting to overlap more and more right. between what happens in the outer world versus like in work world. And right? it was harder to keep compartments going. Yeah, and it was hard to keep those you know um, sort of separate from each other. So therefore, it will it behoove leadership to start thinking more about many of these social issues that at least historically, have fallen outside of it. Now, we would we wanted to talk about those things in the context or through a diversity lens, which was which made sense. Um, but the more we sort of talked about those things, the more we started kind of getting into this these conversations that really kind of highlighted how many times in a number of these issues they are spoken about in very separate silos, right? In in areas where you don't get to actually see from each other. And frankly, I I do recall many times. As we're having a discussion, when you would bring something up that I've never seen is nowhere in my media diet. I'm like, why have I never seen this? Well, I, it, happened, well it happened this morning. I don't know if you realize that. Because the of the Supreme Court case. Oh, for sure it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and this all have to do with, you know, we consume so much of our news through algorithms. Everything is a feed. Everything gets curated. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to have, to kind of see the other side, right? So, we evolved the conversation to be, well, we really should be thinking about this idea of how do we... 
how do we break down these silos of information, of conversation to find more common understanding, right? And and the more we sort of talked about that, the more than the original name, the Diversity Remix, just no longer really made sense. Yeah. Right? And the name so of the Diversity Remix kind of didn't make sense from the very from beginning. Like so one, we, yeah, we yeah. started branding a TDR. Yeah, exactly. So this is so, a way to avoid having to say what it was. And Yeah, so you, you know you're in trouble when you're like avoiding your own name of a podcast. Yeah. So, so look, so that's Reminds the Reminds me of Kia. You ever seen that? You seen that Kia logo? No. It looks like a Chinese star or something. I mean, they've, they've, they've demolished the Kia logo, so it's completely illegible, so you can't tell it's a Kia. But it's an actual Kia. It's genius branding. <laughs> it's genius. That's funny. So, so no, actually, I'm excited. I think um, we want to do more to actually have conversations. And even we found ourselves, frankly enough, we used to complain about this a lot of people, about a lot of other podcasts and, and, and discussions that many times when you did have people that had opposing points of view, it was very much like, you talk for a little bit? I'll talk for a little and bit. We won't kill each other, and then we we just kind of walk our way. Like we agree to disagree, and right. and there was little kind of engagement. And one of the things that we'll try to do much more in this podcast is be just better about engaging in the actual points yeah. of friction, disagreement, and, and different points of view to find those points of common understanding. So that's the whole reason, right? Can we take something that is siloed and bring it? back together to or find ways to yeah. try to unsilo. So that's where the name comes from. So now, what about the apologies f- for the <laughs> no I th- for the rough rough way to I think it's a great name. name and there is for the record one more unsiloed podcast but it's this very obscure kind no of academic. No one cares about that other one. Yeah, nobody cares about that one. So when you when you search unsiloed, just click on the cool logo uh, because that'll be us. Exactly. Um there's a new format too that we're rolling out for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll 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 notice it here pretty quickly as we get into this, but we're going to try to focus more time on talking about a, a like, a, like an actual like a bigger topic that we get a chance to kind of discuss kind of all sides of it, um, which I'm really excited about doing that because I feel like we were getting so caught up on courage or cringe that many times we just didn't get a chance to actually discuss as much sort of the nuance of some of these issues, um, and and courage or cringe will still be part of what we do, but more from our own personal perspective, the things that we're finding courageous and or cringe worthy in general that we get a chance to kind of touch it a little bit so we don't lose kind of the roots of what this podcast has been. So, look, I hope everyone enjoys it. I hope it's, uh, uh, it, the people find it valuable. And uh, more than anything, if, you know, I hope we, we get feedback on on any, uh, you know, how people are feeling about the, about the podcast and in the new, the new uh, direction. Absolutely. And so just on, on a practical level, we're going to have a discussion more in depth about things with a real emphasis on trying to ask more questions and kind of find that common ground. And then at the end of the show, we'll have a more, a, a quicker, at least that's the goal, a kind of courage or cringe for the week, and each of us will kind of share a courage or cringe item, our choice, and maybe we should keep De- it a surprise every choice. time. It should definitely be a surprise. Surprise yeah, every time agree. what De- it actually choice. is. Um, what about guests? Uh, guests will definitely still be part of the um, of the format. Uh, we we haven't been great at that. Uh, I think we've been slightly inconsistent about about bringing guests on, but I love the idea of also getting. I think whenever we do have a guest, it's interesting putting them in that position to have to weigh in on some of these issues, and I will say. Nine nine point nine percent of the time, except for one person. Yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, everyone else was kind of uncomfortable with it, at least in some ways or another, right? But but it kind of speaks to this thing about actually having a conversation about things that you may not agree with. Yeah, and then being able to make your case and and know and hopefully feeling safe for the fact that if you make a case and we disagree, 
no one's gonna call you an idiot. No one's gonna call you a lib or I don't know. I don't even know what the term is for for whatever a, racist, a uh, trumper or uh, or yeah, racist, just, yeah, lib or racist. Just roll it up into racist. Just, just, see what I'm saying? Like like yeah, for sure. That you could actually have a different point of view. So that's just, that's I, what we're kind of hoping for. I just engaged in one of those uh, conversations a moment ago. You got a chance to witness it. I, I was trying not to, but it was kind of hard uh, to uh, stay out of the way. How'd I do? I, I thought you did very well. I, I saw the whole peaks and valleys of an actual conversation. And I give you credit that, look, at the end of the day, getting to a place of at least uh, cordial, cordialness, right, is is important. Um, and especially when you have very different perspectives that you bring with, with another person. But it's tough, man. It's, it's tough to engage on, on issues because they get so emotional so quickly. And just to kind of put the audience out of their misery, just to give two seconds on it, we, 4th of July was yesterday. We're recording the show on July 5th. And uh, one of my neighbors had some differences of opinion in terms of the fireworks that were being done uh, near my property and showed his dissatisfaction by uh, getting caught on ring cameras throwing crap in my yard (laughs) this morning. And so we had a conversation about that. I think it ended in a good place, not with necessarily agreement, but hopefully, hopefully a bit of a bridge there to have further conversations. And that's frankly important to me to have neighbors that you're not trying to avoid. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, all right, so then with Unsiloed then in mind and this new branding, this new positioning, this new format, we picked an interesting kind of talking, uh, a point to kind of dive into right out the get-go because you and I have touched on this subject in a variety of different ways on TDR before. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this idea, even though it's not entirely, the discussions is going to be, you know, will be broad, but we're going to base it on this headline that Ipsos... Uh, came out with earlier, which is Latino Americans, by the way, we'll talk about that designation in a second, but Latino Americans worried about gun violence and crime, optimistic about America. And we can get into the specifics, but the general sense is that Ipsos is saying, hey, you know, the Latino population is seems to be concerned about gun violence and crime and is generally optimistic about the country. Though That headline presupposes that the assumption was something different, like maybe... Latinos are worried about immigration potentially more, and maybe they're not as positive about America because it's hard to be an immigrant in America sometimes. And so mm-hmm. it, it kind of it, it, it led – it's said to me in a way that there is, A, some perspectives about what Latinos think as a voting block, as a constituency, and also that somehow this story was maybe f- finding some things that buck that kind of narrative – but it also showed some other interesting things that I definitely want to get into. But I've heard a lot recently, and maybe we can we can start with this, or we don't have to. But you know, um, the Biden administration's um, favorability with the Latino population is actually of any kind of measured group is one of the lowest, right? In fact, a Quinnipiac University survey that got published last Wednesday found that just twenty six percent. 26 of Hispanics approve of Biden's performance, while 60% disapprove and 13% said they didn't have an opinion on it. So this is in a group that historically has been fairly blue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at least as a block, right? Fairly blue. To have that same that level of dissatisfaction to some people that are talking about this is saying, hey, maybe there's a there's a perspective shift or a change of the, you know, the, the prevailing winds as it relates mm-hmm. to like Latino thought in general. But anyway, I don't know if that's a place to start, but it's a big topic and, you know, we could start wherever you want. Yeah. I think one of the places that I, I wanted to, maybe before getting into that piece, sure, I yeah. think it's really interesting. Obviously right now we look at poll data for Joe Biden specifically. He's just, he has been just doing terrible and continues to do terrible. Right. You need um, to get him a snorkel. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of issues there. I do think that, and we'll get into the data, there is there are a lot of nuances, and there always has been so many nuances in the Latino perspective that yeah. many people like to kind of gloss over or kind of paint it on the one brush. And it's a very, you know... Um, it's a very diverse group. I think that's sort of part of the part of the first sort of problem or whatever you want to call it, right? That that kind of creates that. But the thing, the thing, the reason why I thought it was very interesting for us to, to cover is like coming off the heels of Fourth of July. My big question was like, how American are we feeling? Mm. Like, how are we feeling about the country? How are we feeling about the direction that we're going? And it's so interesting that in some ways, I will say personally speaking, I feel like. It's hard to say more because it was July of 2020 was still so much uncertainty with COVID and so much, so much of the country was still kind of locked down. At that point, they were trying to kind of open a little bit, but there was so much. You mean 2021? No, 2020. Like when, when we were kind of in the heart of, of COVID. Okay. They weren't really trying to open things up in July 2020. There was, there was a little bit of that. Remember, the, remember, there was depending on some of the states were, were thinking about that, right? It was at a federal and then okay. at, a, at a national uh, on level. Because I remember very Biden different. came out and said, like, maybe if, you're good, we, if we're all like, in a good place, you can have 4th of July with your family in 2021. I remember mm-hmm. him saying that, but maybe you're right. I mean, it did, it did, it was very intense. And then we started going like, Hey, this has got to let up somehow. Maybe it was a summer. Right. But that would have been, uh, that would have been, remember Trump's Trump's period in, in, right. in, um, in, in 2020. Right. Um, and, uh, but in some ways it feels like we're in a, I hate to say it, <laughs> a little bit of a worse place as a country. Right. Cause at least in the, in the case of COVID, it was like a, an, an external thing that was messing with us. Like, yeah. yes, we're responding different ways, but now it feels all self-inflicted and in terms of how divided the country is like i saw go, go, going back to our our media diet and what the algorithm shows so many posts of people like basically lamenting of saying like how do i feel like celebrating fourth of july where i feel like unsafe in this country where i feel like this country has turned on us where I, there's a there was so much of that going on and i do kind of wonder if that's a very small percentage of people uh, or whether that's more reflective of the broader country. That's why, to me, that this this data was actually kind of interesting um, for that reason of how Latinos are feeling in general about the country's direction and what are the things that they actually are thinking about. Kind of, I see those two, I guess, very very correlated. There was a, an article in the, in the Atlantic. I don't know if you if you caught it about uh, the nation growing farther apart and the, the it looking like it may be for good. That was the, the tone of this article. Mm. I'll read you just one sentence because I think it touches on what, what you're saying. This is a quote from uh, Ronald Brownstein's article in The Atlantic. And I'm sorry, wait a minute. No, this is somebody talking about uh, The Atlantic article by Ronald Brownstein. And this is a guy named Michael Podhorser, who is a strategist and chair of some institute. And he says, when we think about the U.S., we make the essential error of imagining it as a single nation, a mm. marbled mix of red and blue people. But in truth, we have never been one nation. We're more like a federated republic of two nations, blue nation and red nation. Right. This is not a metaphor. It is a geographic and historic reality. So he goes on to make the case that even in previous time periods, Mm -hmm. this idea of having this more well-developed kind of coastal reality and a more kind of interior pioneer kind of out, you know, this other reality has, has been the case. It's gone mm-hmm. through a bunch of different permutations, but it's it's nevertheless not new. But he's also making the case that he doesn't see it as something ever reversing. Like, that's just something that we've kind of had. Now it's just gotten more pronounced. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, it kind of speaks between the difference of, of states versus federal, right? Um, and this... Um 
yeah, this republic. It's just it, it's it's hard. I think one of the things that I think about is that to me the big one is the is the Supreme Court because mm. I think Supreme Court even though you've had liberal leaning, more conservative leaning, like that's kind of fluctuated. You know, they, there's been always such a push by that court to present itself as a non-political body. Mm-hmm. And it's just really hard to make the case that they're not at this point. Mm-hmm. When such a big chunk of the, of, the, um, of the justices that are there were appointed in a very political process. See what I'm saying by by a very intentional political person, Donald Trump, who sure. was like it was very it was all very very intentional, and of course it's like years of doing this, et cetera. But it, it's hard to, and I think when you start chipping away at at the um, righteousness is probably the wrong, word, the wrong word, but like at the like maybe the sanctity of those of those institutions, I just think it makes it it makes it so much harder. I mean, we've also we've also had the same thing with the presidency, right? The executive branch has lost so much respect for what it is. Incredibility. I mean, you lost a lot of credibility and respect during the Trump administration. Obviously, with Biden, right? I think that's part of the reason is like this been it's been taken away because even if you disagreed before, and there was a lot of people that had a lot of issues with Bush Jr., people had issues with Clinton, with the whole affair thing. But still, people in general, I think, it still respected the office. Respected the office at yeah. a different level, and, and I, I think, think that- all of these different institutions branches have lost credibility have become more and more politicized, which is why it's hard for me to sit here and say how it doesn't feel like more divided than ever. And it shows in the data too, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you couldn't have a starker contrast between Trump and Biden. I mean, you've got one total outsider, brash, you know, kind of business lunatic, and then a total establishment kind of career politician, mild manner versus totally boisterous and ridiculous. And yet Biden's more unpopular than Trump was, right? So that idea of the the office itself mm-hmm. having lost, you know, credibility or or relevance, I think shows up there. The one thing that I would say, though, and this, this is a question to you, because mm-hmm. you already talked about the fact that you know that part of the unsiloed premise is that we know we're being programmed in a way, mm-hmm. right, by the algorithm and, and everything sure. else. So in the case of the Supreme Court, and I can look up the other cases, but just the one that I mentioned this morning, right, which I'm sure didn't get talked about once on MSNBC or CNN, but the fact that the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration in this term to support their ability to get out of to do the get out of the remain in Mexico mm-hmm. policy because they had been sued to not be able to to return to what it was right, before Trump. Right. That is at least on an, if you make the ideological only argument, a direct affront to what you would say is the ideological current that's driving Roe v. Wade and other things well, like the, that. Well, the vote was you had the conservative, more conservative-leaning judges uh, side with the liberal ones in this one in right. order to, to um, uh, support the White House in that in that effort. Right. right? So that is an example of the of this court in, as, as a body having a more liberal-leaning ruling. Um, I think you, so you're right. That is, that is the case. Uh, but... I think, as we all know, not all rulings are created equal yeah. in terms of the weight and impact. And, and it's not just it's not just the ruling, Charlie. I think the part of the problem with that that we're facing right now is that when I think about the outcome of the country, if you're in, if you're in the position where you feel that the Supreme Court was wrong in rolling back Roe v. Wade, the tools to be able to combat that at a national level are, are really really limited. And also knowing that if we be, if you believe as a person that this that this Supreme Court bench is overly political to one side, the ability to fix that, like sure. is is just like these are life um, 
you know, assignments. But couldn't somebody have See what I'm saying? Like, yeah, the, but then, then, you, then you get back into the whole thing. Well, let's pack the court. I start adding a bunch of bodies right. to it. And, and then, then we have and a, then, a thousand justices. And then you have, right. But couldn't you have made that same case, though, in like the end of 1972, early 73, when Roe v. Wade was actually enacted? In other words, couldn't you say like, oh, this is a huge liberal activist, uh, you know, body and the levers that I have at my disposal to change this are not available and... I mean, it, well, it's- yeah, but I think that's what, in some ways, sparked the movement uh, from the conservative side to do everything they were they were going to be able to do to make this the issue, right? To make this the conservative issue to rally around, and then play the long game of that we're going to change this. It may take, it may not be tomorrow. It may not be a lot due to the credit of of all these folks that are very organized in that in that effort. But I think years. it's that. Well, that's my point. Years. So, yeah. so then that's the the that is the. The, the sort of the, the way to think about it. But I will, I will say the even, I think the other, the other thing to think about is that what's considered conservative now versus what's considered conservative 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even in the Reagan era, it's just so night and day, man. Mm-hmm. I, I would say the same thing. For, See what I'm saying? Like, it's so night so and day. Too. I would say the you, same you, thing. Yeah, for I guess so. I mean, I guess the, the, the reason I don't agree with that statement in general, because I think lib, liberal and Democrat are two different things, right? So I would say the Democratic Party is just more diverse in nature. You have AOC and you have Biden in the same party. Mm-hmm. And these couldn't be too further further away from each other in terms of their beliefs, et cetera. And at least on the conservative side, on the, no, let me take it back. On the Republican side, is much more consolidated. I agree. And even for those that don't, like, are not as vocal, everyone's pretty much rallied around Trump. Yeah. At this point, we're still rallying around him. Even everything that's happened is still, and so it feels much more united as a group. And, and I think that's the part where, Can I tell going you back to the outlook of the country, like, then, then what? Where do we go from here? The crazy irony of Mm -hmm. that statement is I actually think that part of the key to drive down that coalescence is the fact that Roe v. Wade has now been overturned. In other words, the one unifying factor Mm. between Liz Cheney and Newt Gingrich was was that. And now in the absence of that, how do we feel about taxation? I've heard that statement. How do we feel about— I've heard that that point that without the the abortion or the pro-life cause, like what's going to be the unifier? Um, it's a that's a really question. interesting thought, you know. But going back to uh, to where we, I know I took I took us on a very tangent, but that's right. but it, but it goes back to the point of like how American are we feeling, yeah. right? When there has been this this erosion of trust against major bodies of government. Well, that, let, me, let me ask it a different way, mm-hmm. it, because I agree with you about the polarity, the division, and I would actually say that it's increasing, not decreasing. Uh-huh. What do you think are the things that could unify? This fragmented America. In other words, what are the things that we have in common that people might broadly agree with? Mm-hmm. Well, the things that you would think that we ha- we would have in common, we this is the part where I have a hard time of understanding. Like, what are those things that we have in common? Right. right. It's not really gun reform, although we just had some pass. But you know, there's questions in terms of how effective it's, it's going to actually be. Although there's at least some parts of it that I think are pretty interesting and. Probably the, the, there's a couple of things to me that are super disappointing in it that I love the fact that, oh, we're, we're going to have funding for red, uh, what are they called? Red, red flag, flag laws. laws. Yeah. But, but, but you read the fine team funding to encourage states to take on red flag law. Good luck. Right. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Anyone doing that. And, and, and it seems to be even from the states like a Florida who has done this, that it actually works pretty well. Sure. Right? It actually saves people. But the way that it gets packaged in to get approved is just like, so that's an example of something that I think could be definitely a cause that people could really rally around. You, where there's a lot of points of 
alignment that people already have around this issue. I mean, frankly, even to me, the part is really interesting. Even the abortion uh, issue, mm-hmm. right? If you look at what people are mostly agree on is most people in the U.S. are for some form of choice. Now, to how much, et cetera, yeah, there's some 56%. of that. 56%. Right? Mm-hmm. Having said that, when you're looking at what's happening in a lot of these states, and it's like immediately with laws already baked in, so those laws at a state level are not reflective of what the people actually believe in. So even that with that's what that's a challenge with this with this ruling, and the reality of what people would argue that are for that we're like, well, it's something that that the Congress should have dealt with anyway. This should have been a law that is passed the way that most laws should be passed, but we're in this position of of impasse when it comes to, comes to those things. I honestly don't know what they are. That we all hate Facebook. Maybe that's definitely a that could be one decision. of them. Right, that could yeah. be one, I guess. But that, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is like, do you the, what are those themes that well, people are well, really? That's what I'm getting to because I mean, mm-hmm. you went almost immediately to like a policy that we might, you know, gun reform and things like that. And I agree that that's part of it. But I wonder if there is like a higher level principle that is worth trying to rediscover. And I don't know what that is. Clearly, it's not patriotism because I right. think patriotism which used to be maybe one of those unifiers, right, in varying, in varying degrees. I told you last, I think it was last 4th of July, that I felt like flying a flag in front of my house was something that people would object to, right? Um, it be, it be, that became super politicized. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It became super politicized. Dude, it, I mean, I think I told you that I was in Malibu, and there was a guy that had a massive truck with a, fra- with a flag of American flag with Trump on it with the body of Rambo, maybe? Or was it... <laughs> I don't know who it was. I think it might have been Rambo. It was Rambo and then with, it's like Trump's like, face. Trump's on it, face. It's like, yeah. What are you kidding me? Yeah. Like now you made me like, oh fuck. Yeah. If I don't, you know, wear a flag, like, oh. But you, but good luck you, with that. But we're like, what I would say, the 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 kind of MAGA movement uh-huh. was. I, I wouldn't even say this was successful, but where they were more effective in tying patriotism to that MAGA kind of reality, I didn't see a counterpart on the progressive left. In other words, it wasn't like flying the flag next to. I don't know, AOC or something. There mm-hmm. wasn't a counter. It was more like America is Trump. Therefore, mm-hmm. we have the the Ukrainian flag or the right, some other right, right, thing. Right, right. You see well, what I'm saying? Because I think the, the two polars are one is about nationalism and one is about, maybe about um, it was not internationalism. I mean, what do we call that? Globalism. Globalism. Globalism with the, with, the, with the other one, right? The nationalism, like when you, when your when your position is make America great again, like you're owning that position. Like no, no, we got the America side already, kind of here with us, right? So that is probably a mistake by the Democratic side of letting seeding that ground, seeding that ground. I completely agree with you. That is that is a problem. And so so getting back to this, and if it's not patriotism, could it be? Could it be freedom? Could it be um, justice? Could it be? Like a value rather than an issue. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, like, but even it, okay. Let's let's say about freedom. We go back to the Roe v. Wade thing. Mm-hmm. The freedom for the people that are in disagreement. We like we have. There is more freedom in Mexico now, and all Latin American countries that are passing some of these laws that we're going backwards here. So that's a tough one to be a rallying cry with everyone because freedom it depends on what we're talking about, or it depends on how we feel, how we define freedom. Yeah, right, exactly, right. So, so that one is uh, is one that is I think also difficult. I mean, the, the thing that we seem to kind of all agree on is the economy sucks, right? So we got to do something about it, right? Everything is way world political. Like, could we? Could there be a potentially anti political movement? Right, like let's get rid of all of these, you know, hags and all these people. You know, you and I have talked about this the that are lot, so the Congress lottery and all. Yeah, that. Yeah, like the people that are that are there for the fight, not for the progress. Right, so many of those that are that are that are currently serving office that are just there to pick fights with the side, and that's all they care about. Yeah, 
And it's like, like, I just had Maxine, that be awesome. Maxine Waters was the Grand Marshal of the Fourth of, Fourth of July parade. I, literally, <laughs> she just went right down my street. So that was wave, awesome. Waving her little flag. What was um, I'm blanking on his name that we had. Um, uh, Joe. Uh, Joe. What's his last name? Come on. Terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, I can't think of what it is right now. I'll, yeah. figure, I'll figure it out. But he, yeah, he's still uh, running against her. But you know, she's getting up there. But for sure. What about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? I mean, yeah, there so many, so many of those just kind of fall in the kind of in the in the crosshairs of a lot of the policy that we've been talking about, and it kind of depends on what you how you feel about it. Joe Collins, Joe Collins, that's what it was. Yeah, sorry, Joe, we love you, Joe, or at least I do. <laughs> I don't even know if I love Joe, but he's a good guy. No, he's so, a super good guy. Yeah, 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 I like him. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, it's kind of depressing though. To think about it, then, it, because well, but that's but that, but that's I think part of what I was thinking about this in this issue is that we're sitting here celebrating Fourth of July, and like I, <laughs> when I caught myself when I was uh, I was at my parents' house and they have this big block party, right. and it was great. Like everyone, it's a very mixed neighborhood actually. Like you have like everything. You have Asians, Latinos, a couple of black families, white families, and everyone is like really neighborly and friendly. You, I saw a couple of kids on bikes uh, with American flags. One had the thin blue line. One had like you definitely have that grouping out there sure. for sure, because uh, you have a lot of blue collar people that live in that in that area as well. Um, so it's a pretty pretty big mix. And you know you're walking around saying happy Fourth to people. Um, and I and I, don't, I don't say that as a way to minimize this Fourth of July. Just it's just like a shorthand of it. Uh, but it, but it did at one point. It did made me think about that. Like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I was saying happy fourth. Like, do I really mean happy fourth? Like, is this feel like the happiest time that we've had in our country yeah. to celebrate? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think we can read a little bit too much into these things, right? Because again, Merry Christmas. Are you really merry? Are you really merry right. right now? Or are we just taking a moment to recognize, you know, some aspect of shared ideals? Right. I, I mean, I struggled. You know, I posted something on the Black Brown page uh, mm-hmm. on July fourth. I don't know if you saw it, but I really struggled with the share text. Because I was, mm. and, and of course, you know, our, that brand has a voice, so I want to make sure right. that it's in keeping with that. But it was like, what is that one thing that could right. unify? And the thing that I chose was, you know, honoring the citizenry of the past, recognizing the potential of the citizens of the present, and the possibility of the citizens of the future. Like that's as best as I could kind of come to mm-hmm. to issue a kind of non-inflammatory you know, July 4th kind of thing to the, to that kind of constituency. That's right. a, but it's a big question, dude, because I mean, you look at it on paper and you're like, okay, you got two nations in this one country. If mm-hmm. we can see that, that are like diametrically opposed that have different geographical backgrounds, different economies that they, that they predominate in different ideology, different everything. And yet they all have to live together in the same spot. Like that's a recipe for bad stuff. Right. So isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh, but but it's not exactly two nations. Let's be honest. There there's two groupies that people, by lack of choice, have to select one or the other. I mean, how many times have you heard uh, people that have said, "Oh, I voted for Trump because he was the only alternative that I could see myself voting for." I didn't like the guy. I didn't care for him. As a lot of disagree with him, but between the two, between Hillary and, and Trump, I had it to Trump. I heard that a lot. There's a also, lot of people that are, that are doing that. Same thing on Biden, by the way. I was going to say, I, you know, I heard for people sure. say I would have voted for like a, you know, soggy dish rag it's, if it was not Donald Trump. Exactly. Right. So we we have these sort of artificial two groups because of that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that would be maybe really interesting is thinking about this, this really moving towards majority rule. Right. Getting rid, getting rid of the electoral college. If you got rid of the electoral college, how would how interesting would would uh, elections actually be? 
But then the, the counterpoint to that would be then the people who are, you know, by and large, the ones with the power and the money would get to rule over everybody. They do now. How is that different now? How, how much of, of who gets to win is based on how much funding they have? Look, the whole idea of electoral college, I haven't heard this this argument. Maybe I haven't. I just, now I'm going to make it my own, supposedly, right? Mm-hmm. I think so much is based on really old school way of thinking that you had to go visit places. You wanted to create a system that encourages candidates to have to visit all parts of the country That's in order for people it. to hear the message. That was part of it. That is no longer relevant. Yeah, and it's not frankly, it's not even true. You don't even do that now. You you look at any of those all those states that are that are um um what are they called that are not conflict states the states that could be turned one way or the other. Like you focus on those, right? Yeah. Um, I'm making the on the, the term of it right now, but it's not even are you the talking case. About battleground, battleground states. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yeah, you focus on battleground states, right? Because um, that's a strategy now. Is battleground? That's that is a strategy now, but, but that's you, because you're and then you have the ones that are given. Right. If you're a Republican in California, your vote hasn't counted in a while for at least for president for president. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. I'll test your thesis right now to see Mm -hmm. how much you laugh by the following statement. Okay. When Donald Trump was asked about the Electoral College, um, he talked about it in the same terms you just did. Right. It's like, you you know, this is the form of representative government to ensure that everybody has a voice and we're not just letting all the people on the coast and then the most populous areas decide, blah, blah, blah. But then he got asked, he's like, well, what if the Electoral College went away? And he said, I would have won anyway because I would have spent all my time in California. Do you believe that it's possible for a conservative to flip a state or get a majority in a state like California or New York? Yeah, we've had it already. Sure. Arnold was was Republican. He was the governor. And Reagan was too. Yeah, Reagan was different time, different kind of Republican, but probably Arnold's a little bit more, you know, this side of the of the ledger in terms of just like a little bit more recent, right? So I do think it's possible, um, and it actually will make everyone's vote count. Right now, we don't have everyone's vote doesn't actually count, and I think that's part of it, that people feel that those that are representing them don't actually represent them or care to represent them because they're not part of that all those battleground states. That's not where you have to go and convince at the end of the day for an election to be won. Iowa, so, Ohio, sure. There's a bunch of Florida. There's a bunch of those that depend. Well, Florida is definitely one, right? That's it gets it gets battled back and forth. But it would be a very different conversation, I think, in terms of representation. I feel like that actual politician would have to feel like they have to own, like earn every vote. But then, why wouldn't the people in Iowa or Delaware or other states go like, now I don't have a vote because nobody's spending any time on the issues that I care about here? Like, I mean, by the way, we're only talking about the presidential well, election. Well, we, we talked about, which was the presidential, we're talking about fracking, which is an issue that, it, it was part of the presidential uh, agenda, an issue that impacts a very small percentage of people. Like, to some extent, like, maybe that shouldn't be part of the presidential agenda. Well, maybe same sh- thing with corn subsidies or whatever and You see what I'm saying? Like, like yeah. maybe those things shouldn't actually make it there. Hmm. Like, there's also, like, truth to that, right? If they are to represent such a small percentage of, of this, I mean, my point is that all their votes will count because they will all actually be counted. Right, not just that are, that are not just the ones that are in battleground states. Okay, so not count, but that their voice no longer plays a role in the narrative, I guess, or no longer plays a role in the direction of an administration. Right. Or in other well, words, I guess that, that's kind of the question, right? Is by having this kind of system, do you have very small pockets of the country that have an outsized voice in directing the agenda? I, I, I know right now we're kind of sticking to presidential, you know, but but still at a presidential level. That in reality, it shouldn't. Maybe fracking shouldn't be a key point 
that every candidate needs to think about, talk about, and instead talk about how we're going to actually deal with the fact that we're so at the mercy of many of these very unstable countries. The second they're upset with us, all of a sudden gas prices go up through the roof, whether it's Russia, whether it's Venezuela, or like think about everywhere that we get oil from is like, they're just not great places, let's be honest. Yeah. Right. That's a bigger agenda item. But instead of talking about that, we're talking about fracking. Right. That's the one that actually dictates uh, political discourse and policy. So you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I definitely I think see that, that could but, be. But what I'm trying to understand is then let's take just without even talking about states, let's just talk about like farmers, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Right now, agriculture and farming, if you think about like, you know, corn and all this other stuff in Iowa and these these states that, that matter a lot in presidential elections, they get heard about those issues precisely because of the Electoral College. Let's say the Electoral College goes away, and we're only talking about California and New York and maybe Florida and Texas really having where most people are going to spend their campaigning time and building into their platforms the issues that matter to those people. Why would any president want to talk about farming ever again? You see what I'm saying? Why would they care? Because it's a big issue in California. It's a big issue in Florida. It's a big issue in Texas. It's not just in Iowa is is the point. And if you are a Republican and in the farming industry, and I'm sorry, if you're in farming industry in California, you're a lot more likely to be Republican than you are, you are to be to be Democrat. Let's be honest. At least the people that own the, the, the you places. you don't live in the cities. You don't live in the cities, right? So so that is a very Republican platform that should be talked about, that they will care about. All I'm saying is that their issues will actually need to be heard because the, the voting block of those that are live in urban areas in California will be a lot more important than what it is right now because it's just completely ignored. Maybe not complete, but you know what I mean. Like that's a state that just so historically has gone Democrat in their direction that you do end up talking about the, the issues that the farming community has, but just not in the places where the majority of people actually live. Mm. Yeah, maybe they're slightly different. You're right. Maybe maybe there's there may be some nuance there that that you won't catch. But then the question becomes: Well, shouldn't those be state issues instead of being federal issues? But that itself is a kind of Pandora's box, right? Because there's a lot of disagreement mm. on that. Yeah, like- maybe. Well, I'm saying for some of those that are, that that shouldn't that don't fall or though that don't rise to the level of yeah. of national importance but they should be really more treated as 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 uh as, the, as state issues we started this conversation talking about like the latino constituency the block mm-hmm. itself we haven't talked much about that we haven't talked about that a lot I, I actually do have one question for you mm-hmm. that might get us back on on that track did did your when you were coming up did your parents like explicitly talk to you about politics or ideolo- political ideologies not really. Uh, my parents weren't. I don't know. I, I love to ask them when they became very politically active. Politically active in their, from their to me, like voting. Very, they're very consistent voters. Uh, and I would and to give my parents a lot of credit. Uh, they're not necessarily swayed by what I think or one thing or the other. They're very well, like they talk about it as a, as a couple what they're going to vote for, and uh, and they take it very seriously. Like they're more prepared. I would say. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like they're way more prepared than I am on, on a lot of these things. Sure. Like they really take it very, very seriously. And it's been a while, but I, I don't, I can't tell you when exactly it started. Can, can, I, can I ask, like, have, first of all, has, have their political ideologies evolved, changed over the course of your lifetime? And if so, what were they? What are they now? Um, then I, I can answer for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they've been pretty, um, I think they fall within, they definitely fall within the Democrat side of the equation. Uh, on some things, they probably become more conservative. I think on other things, social issues, they become more liberal for sure. Um, so they're a little bit mixed. I, I mean, it's interesting because because once you take the title away of what you are, whether Republican or Democrat, if you actually were to pull them against a number of different issues, I think they will kind of fall um, potentially on both sides of the equation on, on certain things. 
Um, but they they tend to, in general, they will call themselves Democrat uh, and will support a lot of the Democratic ideas. But when it comes to additional taxing and things like that, you know, as as retired people, they're not they're not all gung ho about just adding more tax and not taking any cuts on anything. So financially so more that, conservative. So financially probably I think it will be a little mm-hmm. bit more conservative. My things. parents never talked to me about politics mm-hmm. or, or ideology. I do remember if I'm looking back at my time, like they were probably more centrist, more moderates. And I think they kind of picked and, choose, and chose things based on, mm-hmm. I don't know, how they were feeling or whatever it was at that particular time. But as, as I got older, they definitely took a more conservative lean. Um, but driven, I think, or colored a lot by the fact that they came from South America and seeing what a lot of, you know, more left-leaning administrations sure. and, and politicians did, or at least what they thought they did, mm-hmm. right? Um, what happened in, obviously, what's been going on in Venezuela for a very long time, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of it. Um, Cuba, et cetera, right? We lived in South Florida. Well, well that's a, yeah, I was going to say that's a very Florida dynamic yeah. that you see there before that reason, right, is that you have... More that influence people that came from more socialist slash more you know po- types of government that could be construed as more liberal in some ways, but um, and then they saw a thing that was wrong with it, right? What are some of the the the, the specific stats here on this uh, Latino block? Yeah, in terms of the things that they're about? most worried about, it's interesting when you look at what it was. So they gave this this survey had three data points from December twenty twenty one. March 2022 and then June 2022. So think about the last six months, give or take, right? How that has how that's changed. Six months ago in December 2021, the number one um, issue by far was concern around COVID-19. Number one item that they picked, right? Number two, uh, crime or gun violence. And number three, climate change. Interesting, right? Those top three. Then you have a bunch of other ones that kind of all bunch in the group. But those are your top three issues. How has that changed? So let me give you the new top three, right? So from coronavirus went from the number one that is now middle of the pack or below middle of the pack in terms of where it ranks six months later. Okay. The number one item by far and even higher in terms of the number of people that, that selected as, as his top three um, uh, issues right, to worry about was crime or gun violence. So that is ranking at a higher in terms of the concern now in June that even what coronavirus ranked in December of 2021. Wow, so a lot right? of heat around that one. A lot of heat around that, around crime and gun violence. That was number one. Number two, uh, which makes complete sense, it, which also ranks higher than where coronavirus ranked in December, what, is around inflation or supply chain economy. breakdowns. Economy, right? These are on inflation. So that makes a lot of sense. And then number three, which is a distant number three, uh, at least, yeah, almost 20 points away, is immigration at 21 right so that was where before it was kind of starting to be in the middle of the pack still maybe top a little more than the top third but still getting close to the middle of the pack so that was the the top three um which is really really interesting that you see that climate change dropped right um covid as mentioned covid virus dropped uh, significantly social inequality discrimination also dropped for them so it wasn't top of the list uh, but went from somewhere kind of middle-ish to now looks like bottom third, give or take. Although racial and just and discrimination uh, has been fairly consistent, kind of but still bottom third, but but in the top part of bottom third, if that, if that makes sense. Is that, is that one of the data points that they use to say that the Latino population is more optimistic because I feel like I have le- I'm less discriminated against? I don't know, because uh, I was actually trying to find that specific point of, of how they feel more optimistic, and I wasn't quite f- finding that mm. um, in terms of how they are. They did a lot of polls specifically around people and how they feel about them. That was also super interesting. 
and and ask them for each in each state how people feel about them, right? Just to give you the headlines, so Gavin Newsom from California, uh, his support of favorable um, kind of dropped some, still over 50%. Okay. Right, so 59 to 51. Joe Biden went from 53 to 44. So in the trend that we've seen on a national level, so the same thing for Latinos, right? It's gone down. Kamala Harris from 48 to 43 also has been dropping. Uh, Ron DeSantis going up from 39 to 49. Right. And then Greg Abbott is, you know, from 27 to 30. So it's gone up a little bit, but, but someone, so that one seems to be more mixed bag. Donald Trump, the same, 24 to 25. I think the people that are for Trump, they're for they're Trump. And no matter what happens, they're going to be all in. Um, and then Ted Cruz actually lower than than, uh, than Donald Trump from 22 to 20. So it's gone down some. Um, so you're seeing just a little bit of, of this fluctuation here. Uh, although in the, the big trends with the president, as just as we've seen the, at a national level. The part that I can't reconcile, though, because the piece goes on to also say that there, that there's a lot of um, parity between how the Latino population views both parties in relation to a lot of these issues. So crime is veritably the same in terms of they, they think that they each do a crappy job at doing this, maybe for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile the fact that, you know, these are the hot button issues they kind of think that both parties are equally bad at handling them. And yet, right now, Biden is polling at 26% with Hispanics. Yeah, it's kind of like the, you know, the worst of two evils, right, um, kind of situation. I think this is a group that feels that they're being underserved across the board, whether it's, it's Republicans or Democrats. And the reality with the economy is, like, how do you give good marks to the, the administration this year? Regardless how much is their fault or not, it doesn't matter. If you're running, if you are the president and gas prices are seven bucks, it's just hard people. We've talked about this, right? The real data, what people see, like it's, a, you, it's like a marketing message they're seeing every single day whenever they pull up to a gas station, you know? And that is, I think, hard to, uh, to say. At the same time, I think there's a lot of political discord, pol- discord and polarization that is happening that is. I would assume that Latinos see that and probably put quite a bit of blame on the Republican Party from some of the policy, lack of policy, lack of movement on things. Um, so that's what I'm guessing that it probably gets both sides get some version of that. If you were a strategist right now talking to a candidate or maybe even talking to Biden and his reelection hopes with Latino, what would you suggest? Um, like, how do you get that up from the basement? Yeah, I think you really have to. Uh, uh, you you really have to make this group a a key part of your of your strategy across like all the states. You can't take it for, don't take it for granted in California. Don't take it for granted in the places where where they tend to get taken for granted. Um, and I think you got to start that work now against the issues that they most care about. I, I do think the economy is a really really important one. I mean, even on that question, right? Is the which party do they see is good for the U.S. economy? Okay. People had the Republican Party rank from 21 to 20. It's like, I'm assuming this is percentages. I'm not sure, right? But 21% said the Republican Party in, in December. Now it's 25%. So yeah, it's gone up some. Not like, it's not like not a, a ton. Not a ton. Yeah. On the Democratic side, it's like 23% in December. Now it's 18%. So that's gone even lower, right? But still, these are no, none of these numbers are like, oh, they think one party is significantly better than the other, right? The neither is ranks higher. The neither is that is that twenty percent has gone up twenty two percent. Vote for neither. For vote for neither is like is like remember that campaign with Jack in the Box like don't blame me I voted for Jack. Yeah. This is what this is what it actually feels like, 
And it's interesting on on crime and public safety, they see the parties about the same. Yeah, December what I was referring to. Uh, was 19 and 19 for both, 90%. And by June, 19 and 18, the Democrat went down by one percentage point. I think because the the, per, the perception is like, well, the Democrats don't believe in, uh, you know, cr- in um, basically crime and justice or mm. law and order, yeah. right? The, the, it's all the, law and the, order. The, the Democrats all don't believe in law and order and mm. the Republicans are more guns and therefore there's more deaths. So like if I have to pick between right. those two... You know, kind of the, the places where you do see a big difference in terms of where the Democrat part, Democratic Party does get good marks in is handling of the COVID nineteen pandemic, ranked significantly higher in twenty one versus twenty versus um, sorry in December versus now, like in both cases versus Re- Republican Party. Also on education, they rank significantly higher, basically more than double. It's actually gone up in how people feel the Democratic Party has actually uh, handling education. By the way, it is worth keeping in mind. This is a case where the majority of people see themselves in the Democratic Party. So let's be honest. So that's some of the, a lot of that is actually very tied to um, uh, how they see, how they view themselves. Well, I know that there's a lot more we could talk about. We do have to get to our courage or cringe for the week here to kind of wrap this show. What are the what are the things that we can agree on on where the Latino population is now relative to their kind of view of the, of the landscape, at least politically. One of the claims that I would say is that there does seem to be movement in terms of what you could kind of count as take for granted, I guess, and what the reality is now, meaning that it's just like you have swing states, you have swing blocks. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Latino population, if you look at it as, as a whole and you just kind of average it all in, which is not necessarily a good strategy, but if you were to look at it, it would be much closer today than a year or two ago to a swing block. Is that, yeah, do you agree I think with that? I, I do. And I think my overarching statement on the Latino population as it relates to even like politically is that you cannot think of them anymore as a country of origin audience. Like you got to think of them as, as people that are majority is growing up here, even for the ones that have immigrated here, where the issues that are happening in this country are much more important. Also, their political ide- ideology and leaning is much more of an independent group that is actually more, more, much more open of seeing both sides of the equation because I think the dynamics are changing in Florida just like in changing in California. If, you come in, if you're someone that is from South America or, or that has heritage from Cuba, you can't automatically assume they're going to be Republican. And all same thing. If you're in California with some of the heritage is Mexican or Salvadorian, you, cannot, yeah. you can't just assume they're going to be, you, you, you know, be Democrat. So some of the most like rock ribbed conservative people I've talked to lately have been like Central American immigrants. I was talking to my landscaper, his guy, who I've, his name is Onofre, a great guy. We've had him for like 15 years doing the landscape in my house. And he brought up to me this the the issue that we talked about months and months ago about the new law that California instituted to ban uh, gas powered engines outdoors. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. dude, he was he, livid. He was lit up. He yeah. was lit up about like they're going to kill my business and they're destroying it. And he put all of it on on Newsom. It was really interesting because here's this guy. I've never had a single political conversation with him. And we just start talking about what's going on. And he brought that up and he was like fired up. And the more that I talked about him, I was like, wait a minute, you don't, you kind of sound like, you know, you should be in Alabama, not, not, uh, you know, Central American mm-hmm. immigrant. So I do think that it's not taking for granted is another maybe truth of this, of this block. Is there anything else? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's a big one, honestly, because I feel like this is a problem that Latinos always have when it comes to, you know, uh, time for elections is that so many times we're being taken for granted. And I think it's cost the Democratic Party a lot. I think the Republican Party has actually been better at it 
of trying to earn that that group, and they saw the most gains last last at least on the on the presidential election, right? Trump got the most uh, uh, votes, uh, gaining votes from Latino constituents. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're paying attention. But I think it's it's less it's interesting how immigration, while it's important, is not the number one issue. Yeah, that that they're dealing with. So, um, which I I still think, think is a one. surprise. That's that's my I guess my final point on this is that even this this whole article and this way of thinking of like wait a minute it's not Im- immigration in a way communicates what some of the issue continues to be, which is you don't really know a lot of people in this community, right? In other words, mm-hmm. it, there's so much taken on assumption and so much taken on, you know, faith, I guess, that things that seem logical, like you're an immigrant, therefore you care about immigration as your number one topic, don't necessarily end up being true if you look at the numbers. But all of that just kind of kind of belies a larger issue to me, which is like, you know, you might need to go and meet some people and like talk to them and find out what actually makes them tick. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. As a step one. Yeah. That'd be crazy. <laughs> Start that. <laughs> nutty, nutty suggestions. All right, Charlie. So listen, we, we, we obviously wanted to change a little bit and you know, one way that we wanted to still keep an, almost an homage to the courage or cringe from before is yes. that every week give our courage or cringe of the week. So what say you? What is your courage or cringe of the week? All right. I am going to tackle Marta Kaufman, who's the uh, the creator of the great Friends franchise. Do you ever watch Friends when it was out, like when it was big? Barely. Really? That, was, that, I, that I show. <laughs> I did, yeah, I just didn't really care for it. it. It was super white. I'm sorry. Like, this is all tied to this, this issue, but it was so white. It was like, also like so like kind of saccharine and unrealistic. You know what I mean? You had these like young, it, it all was, broke, but they're living in like a $10,000 a month apartment in Manhattan. It's like, right. what is uh, happening here? The the worst part of our Friends, from my perspective, was that uh, was the character Ross. Oh, like, because yeah. I do grow a pair. Like, come on, man. Like, move on or, or whatever. Like, just this, whiny. you can't have the same storyline over and over and over again. It's just like, yeah, it was very annoying. Well, so, nevertheless, the Friends franchise has persisted and actually, in, in many cases, even grown a following because of streaming and everything else. So, my cringe for the week is on Marta Kaufman, the creator again of Friends, donating $4 million to an organization, and we'll talk about in a second what that is, because of guilt over friends not being diverse 25 years ago. And she actually is quoted as saying that she felt guilty and terrible and ashamed, actually, about how how friends was so undiverse that she was compelled, for some reason it took until now, and she talks about how the George Floyd situation a couple of years ago was a big part in her thinking, but doesn't actually identify why in July of 2022 she made this move. But anyway, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, she gave $4 million as a donation to an organization uh, to establish a professorship at her alma mater, which is Brandeis University in Boston, to help scholars study the cultures of Africa and the African diaspora. So, it's, it's a cringe for me this week for this. And it is true, Jesus, that Friends was not ethnically diverse or, frankly, any kind of diverse. It wasn't sort ideologically of. diverse. It wasn't fashion yeah, diverse. Yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, I guess we had the one kind of kooky character who was kind of out there. But beyond that, it was yeah. pretty much the same person, right? What's her name? Um, the character's name? The name of the actress? I don't remember. I don't remember the character either. Oh, no, Phoebe. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. So it definitely wasn't ethnically diverse. And there's nothing wrong with giving money to support causes that you care about, but it's Mm -hmm. the rationale of attaching the donation to the show and what the donation is for that is cringy to me, right? So 
I feel like she could have just made a donation, right? But instead, she tied it to the fact that she's embarrassed by the success of Friends, not necessarily about the fact that cultural, ideological, and ethnic diversity is a good thing for the world, but the fact that I made a white show, I feel bad about it now, here's some money. It felt super transactional <laughs> to me in what I read. It also smacks tremendously of now, self- now you can't, uh, you know, you can't say anything about me anymore. Right. <laughs> I'm just riffing. So it also, uh, it also smacks to me of self-aggrandizing, right? This whole idea of friends was so big, so important, so part of the culture that, you know, that without its diversity in it, somehow we've committed, you know, a crime against humanity. And to me, it was also kind of self-promoting in a way. But worst of all, for me, the thing that really threw me over the edge is if you think about this idea that we're going to use this money, $4 million gift, to open a trade school for in uh, hard to reach uh, impoverished communities, to uh, provide more childcare services to working moms, to uh, relieve food desert options? No. To establish a professorship at Brandeis, which has a 5% African American student body, and it costs $76,000 to go there, right? And I think about this is, this to me is the progressive version of thoughts and prayers. This, literally, <laughs> this is where I put it. It's the progressive version of Thoughts and Prayers. That's hilarious. We're going to establish a super premium elite professorship at a school no one could get into, that there are no black and brown people in, and we're going to do that as a way to get over our guilt for a show that we made 25 years ago. So for me, for those reasons, I'm a cringe of the week with Marta Kaufman. Wow. That's, yeah. At least you didn't have any feelings about it. That's That's a good one. Yeah. Uh yeah, I didn't know how to react to that. By the way, the thing I was, I was saying earlier, you know that that show also uh, gets uh, crap for for saying that they were a copy of uh, Living, Living Single. Single. Yeah, Living yeah. Single with with Queen Latifah. It actually came out before Friends. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're saying that it was inspired by that show, and that show never got really its its due. Kind of uh, actually, I actually used to watch that show. I, yeah, I like that show. I saw Living that show Single. A few times. Um, but yeah, I'm not not a fan of Friends. So it's it's funny. But you're right. It's this is. This is the kind of thing where it feels like a little bit misaligned and uh, what what they're trying to do. And frankly, like it is a very it reeks of white guilt, um, and <laughs> and not necessarily about creating like real impact, right, uh, on some folks. Although I guess maybe for people that are trying to want to go to that institution, then it, it creates some if opportunity you, there. If so you want to study about the African diaspora at a very expensive school, Ooh. she's your lady. So my courage or cringe of the week, and this is, I don't know how much this is still in the rumor mill or it's now very much verified, but mm. uh, it came out that there was an email uh, circulating of which President Biden was being basically be set to nominate an anti-abortion Republican, uh, Chad Meredith, to a federal trial court seat in his, in, in his state. And part of it, the rationale as to why he was doing it seemed to be like a back. Uh, you know, back, uh, what, what do they call back that? Backroom. Like, Backroom um, negotiation between him and Mitch McConnell so that Mitch McConnell will stop holding up future federal nominations, right? It seemed like a, mm. like a tip for that. And it was done, it was said to be done at the same time as the Roe v. Wade uh, ruling was going was gonna to come out. And the reason why it's a major cringe for me is that this is either important to you or it isn't. Like, you can't be sitting here talking about it publicly saying how how terrible the decision was, how political it is, whether you're considering like all these other options to try to resolve it, to like you're very much for pro-choice, and then turn around and then nominate someone that has a very anti-abortion stance into the same kind of court system that the Republican Party did a great job of, of staffing up. 
because uh, it starts with federal trial courts. Those play a major role in what actually makes it up to Supreme Court. So why would you do that? Like, and I get it's all a political negotiation, but it just it comes out of so two faced, and I'm so glad it came out. And bit these guys back in the butt because you're either on one side of the aisle or the other. We could disagree, but at least if I know you're consistent, I'm like, okay, yeah. well, hey, I, 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 I get it. Give me a target that's uh, real. You, you know, yeah. like, I, I get it. We don't agree, but at the same time, at least there's consistency there. And with this, I just think it speaks to all of the issues that many people feel are wrong with our political system is that politics above people, above policy, above values and beliefs, right? Because if that really is a value and a belief that he truly has, then live up to it. Then, then this is not the way to mm. get a backroom negotiation done with Mitch McConnell. As a matter of fact, bring it to light. Say, hey, by the way, these guys wanted me to nominate this this guy who's anti-abortion, and I decided that even if it costs a seat, we're not going to do that. That's how strongly I believe about, about this issue. Or stop talking about the issue like you actually care about it or like it's like a really big part of your stance. Don't say that, and then go ahead and do this. It's fine. Mm. So anyways, that's so you're, my, you're, that's my cr- so cringe of the week. you're a cringe on everybody involved in that then, or is it specifically Biden? Uh, more on Biden for sure. Yeah, on Biden because you expected what you expected from McConnell. Yeah, of course, but that's he already has a state position. Dude, I mean that guy held up the nomination of a Supreme Court judge, so like that's not beneath him. This is like the federal judge is like whatever. Yeah, whatever. Like, this is nothing, right? But with Biden, especially you coming out and being so vocal about your stance, and then turn around and do this, right? This backroom negotiation. That's where I have a big issue with with him doing this. So that's my cringe of the week. Well, I'm the, sure it happened this week. I think it did recently happen. So we've uh, inaugurated uh, unsiloed with two cringes. I wonder if next week we'll have two courages, but we'll never know, and I won't. I won't know until we record. We'll yes. see. But uh, I think I agree with you on, on yours. <laughs> so I have to study it more. But as I'm hearing it the first time, you made a very compelling case. See, this goes back to us being in our little silos and not actually hearing any of this. That's right. It. Like that's exactly what happens. That'd be a good. A good. Uh, I know there's some apps that do this already. That kind of give you the. You're seeing a news article and it shows you a little meter that says this was reported mostly on right or this was reported oh, mostly I like on that. left. Yeah. That's a cool start, but there could be like a turbo version of that right. where it's like literally like the the unsiloed app. Right. You know what I right, mean? Right. This gives you the, the, the other version that like is being the, circulated. The side by side. You know what I mean? Right, right, it's like the side by side headline, story, whatever point of view, perspective. We'll get there. That's the yeah, that's yeah. the future iteration of the show. It's just a really cool app and we'll all, be, we'll all make millions. All right. Anything else? That's it. All right, friends. Hope you like the show. Um, Hope you'll come back and listen to us next week. We always, until then, will encourage you to live a life unsiloed. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. 
Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.